to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come now to the fount of every blessing, acknowledging that our hearts are so prone to wonder how often, Lord, we go astray in our own hearts, how often we say things, think things, do things that are not pleasing to You. And we pray that You would forgive us. We pray that You would providentially preserve us and hold us fast. We're thankful that our salvation and security is not dependent upon our faithfulness, but Your faithfulness. It's not dependent upon our hold upon Christ, but His hold upon us, and we're grateful for that. So hold us fast, Lord. And as we come together as a church this morning, on this Lord's Day, a day in which many churches are not meeting, even some churches not meeting until January, they've said, because of the government orders. And I'm thankful to be here with the people who are willing to defy tyrants, who are willing to obey God rather than men, who are willing to be bold for the glory of Christ, that the church might be used by you in this hour for your glory. So we're thankful to meet today. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you give us the privilege of worshiping you. And I pray that our worship would be acceptable in your sight. In the name of your Son, amen. Alright, so picking up where we left off last week in our study of the spiritual disciplines, we have already considered the first several disciplines. We've considered uh, Bible intake, prayer, and worship. And now we're on the fourth discipline, that of evangelism. Evangelism. And I told you that this is going to come in two parts. Two parts to this lesson on evangelism. Part one, we talked about the basics of evangelism, right? The who, what, when, where, why, how of evangelism. We concluded that every Christian's called to do it, that it's proclaiming the gospel, right? Not just living a godly life. Uh, that old quote, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Throw that one out, right? That's not biblical. You can't preach the gospel without words. So we've got to proclaim the gospel. Everyone's called to do it everywhere, any chance we get all the time, right? That's the basics of evangelism. But now we're in the midst of lesson two on evangelism, and that is what, I'm enti- what I've entitled The Essential Components of a Gospel Message and Outline for Evangelism. And of course, the goal in this lesson is basically to give you an outline of things to say, the truths that you need to communicate to the non believer if you're going to effectively communicate the gospel. And I've given you a five point outline. A five point outline. Does anybody remember those outline points? What is the five-point outline I give you? Caitlin, remember. God, man, Christ's response, and promises and warnings. That's right. God, man, Christ's response, promises and warnings. This is kind of a basic outline of truths to communicate as you're doing evangelism. And we've already looked at the first two, God and man, right? Uh, John Calvin said in the Institutes that all true wisdom and knowledge consist in this, an accurate knowledge of God Himself. That's where it begins. You cannot accurately understand the Gospel until you understand the character of God and until you understand the character of yourself, your own condition. So we've talked about God, and what do we conclude about God? What are some of the attributes of God? Come on now. Where's my note takers at? God is holy, holy and righteous. And he hates sin. He hates sin. Oh, well, that's not popular. Come on now, John. His standard is perfection, right? God. Again, I told you, if you want to shock people, tell them, hey, you've got to be perfect to get to heaven. Right? They're going to be like, what? And the Catholics get that, right? That's why they're needing purgatory. They've got to get purified. But the good news is the Gospel makes us perfect in the sight of God through Christ, right? But you've got to be perfect to get to heaven. 
So God's justice, right? God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's the problem for the sinner. He is dealing with a God who is perfect and who will not overlook sin. You know, a lot of times we think, well, God's just going to overlook my sin. That's what it means that He's going to forgive me. But the Gospel doesn't provide us forgiveness at the expense of justice, right? It's not. It wouldn't really be fair to say that God gives us mercy and not justice. Because the Gospel, in the Gospel, God justly gives us mercy, right? Through the cross. Jesus satisfies justice so that God is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul says in Romans 3. So God is just. And then we talked about the character of man. And what do we conclude? Is man a pretty good person that just makes mistakes? No. What's wrong with man? He's sinful, right? To sum it up, man is a sinner. Man is a sinner. And what are some of the ways that we talked about man's sin? Is sin just isolated acts of lawlessness? Or is it more than that? Born in sin, right? It's not just our evil deeds. Those are the symptoms of the real problem, namely the problem of the heart. Our heart is corrupt. Right? The wicked go astray from birth. They're wicked from birth. We all exit the womb that way, come into the world that way. Our hearts are naturally bent to do evil. And therefore, we talked about man's actual sins. Those are the evil deeds that spring forth from the corruption of our hearts, our lawless actions. We talked about the just penalty. What is the just penalty for sin? Death. Death. Even eternal death, right? Eternal separation from the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, and eternal subjugation to the wrath of God forever in hell. And then we talked about man's inability. Man does not have the ability to keep the law of God. He does not have the ability to please God or even to come to God apart from sovereign grace. Salvation is a gift of grace. So now we come this morning to part three, the third point in this outline, and that is Christ. Christ. So far, it's been bad news, hasn't it? Right? It's been, all, it's been very bad news. If you read the book of Romans, that's the way Paul begins his gospel presentation. Starting in verse 18 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, it's all bad news. It's all, you know, they're God-haters. Uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none good, no, not one. And then finally, you get to verse 21 and it gets to the good news. Why is that? Why do you think Paul spends so much time in the first few chapters of Romans expounding the bad news. Why does he do that? Why does Paul spend so much time in the first chunk of Romans talking about the bad news? There's no need. That's right. Why bother? That's right. The good news is only good news in light of the bad news, right? So the Gospel shines forth gloriously in light of the dark backdrop of sin and depravity and condemnation. Right? That's where Paul begins. It's as if he throws the sinner off the cliff of death and at the very last moment slings him a rope of hope in the Gospel. And so it's important for us also, I think, to communicate the bad news. But we don't do that a lot of times in our culture. right? A lot of times in our culture we talk about sin like this. All of sin, but there's eternal life in Christ. Or God, God has... You know, your best life now in mind for you, in store for you. That's kind of the way people in our culture like to present the gospel. But very rarely do you find people really stopping and taking some time to expound the bad news. But that's where we begin. The gospel begins with the bad news. But now we come to point three, and that's the good news. The good news is Christ. You could say that Jesus is the gospel, He is the good news. He is the good news. And so when we talk about Christ this morning, basically we're going to look at it under two headings. His person and His work. 
His person and His work. That is to say, who is Jesus and what has He accomplished? Who is Christ and what has He accomplished? So we'll start with His person this morning. The person of Christ. Who is, according to the cult, what are some, what are some erroneous ideas that our culture has about the person of Jesus? What are some lies in our culture about Jesus? Jesus loves everybody. Just a man. He's loving, he loves everybody. Okay? And everybody the same. He just loves everybody. Alright, Jesus is just a mere man. What are some other lies about Jesus? Good teacher. Just a good teacher, right? Good teacher. How could we answer that? What did you say? One of the gods. Just one of many gods. One of many gods. How could we answer that, that he's just a good teacher? Do good teachers claim to be God if they're not God? No. Heretics do that. Blasphemers do that, right? That's why C.S. Lewis said there's only three options with Jesus. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. There's no other option. Either he was a liar, he claimed to be God though he was not, and he knew he was not. He claimed to be God and thought he was though he was not, therefore he was a lunatic out of his mind, or he really was God. He really was Lord. What are some other so so he's one of the many gods? That's another lie. What are some uh what are some sects of Christianity today that teach that Jesus is just one of many gods? Does anybody know? Jehovah's Witnesses. I'll come knocking on your door looking somewhat like I am this morning. Knocking away, and they're gonna tell you that Jesus is just a God. Mormons. Mormons. Right? Mormons, if you don't know what Mormons believe, my goodness, it's abs- I don't know how anybody believes this stuff. They literally believe that God the Father used to be a man on another planet, lived a good godly life, followed the gods, and because of his obedience, he became glorified and received godhood, became a god, got his own planet with his own goddess wife, and through sexual intercourse has populated the world with a lot of spirit beings, and we are some of those beings. Jesus is one of the beings that is the product of that sexual union between God and his goddess wife. Jesus is one of many gods. And oh, by the way, you and me, if we're obedient to God, we can become God's men. Sorry, women. Only men. Men can become gods, receive their own planets, and do the same thing all over again. And who knows how many times this has happened. I mean, this is insane, isn't it? Sweet. <laughs> it's very appealing. You see why they believe it, right? I mean, it makes sense. Invent a religion where you can become God. Where did we first hear that line? In the garden. In the garden, right? What did he say? You should be like God. You should be like God. And Mormonism grabs that lie, repackages it, and sells it on your doorstep, right? That's a lie from hell. Oh, this one thing I want to mention too. There's yes, also sir. lately there's been kind of a, some uh, some sects that have risen up. I don't know if anyone out here that are trying that have been seeking to blend uh, Christianity with uh, with uh, Mohammedism. Yeah. So there you go. Or you kind of Islam. There you go. Pluralism, universalism. You know, every every way is valid, right? I mean, just kind of get your way to God your own way. What, what, is, what is wrong with that statement? Think about that statement. Every religion is equally valid. Is that a consistent position? They contradict one another. Are we just going to violate the laws of logic and pretend it's okay to lie and contradict each other? So wait a minute. Christianity and Islam are equally valid, but both of them say they're the only way. How do you get around that? Well, Christ said, I am the way, the truth, the life. That's right. It's the Father, but through me. That's right. Jesus made a claim of exclusivity. We have to deal with that, right? Now, of course, they could both be wrong hypothetically, but they cannot both be right because they're mutually exclusive and diametrically opposed. Also, because they have to prove their deity or sovereignship of 
their gods when we don't have to explain Jesus' sovereignty because it already has. We don't question it. So we can just expand on that instead of having sure. to prove that there is a God or that He is all. It's a good point. We don't exactly have to prove there's a God, do we? Because all men already know there's a God, right? So trying to prove there's a God to people who know there... That's like trying to prove the existence of air. If someone said, hey, I don't believe in air, you're not going to think, man, I need to really get to the drawing board and figure out a good argument for the existence of air. No, you're going to say, friend, if you don't, you're actually using air to make your arguments. Right? You're presupposing air right now. As you make your sophisticated arguments against air, you're sucking air in your lungs, your words are transmitting through the air. Without air, you couldn't even make your arguments. That's the way it is with the atheist, right? He says, well, there's no God. Well, wait a minute. To even argue scientifically against God, you've got to presuppose God. You've got to use God to argue against Him, right? It's a self-refuting worldview. So, back to the issue of Jesus. So there are many false ideas concerning Jesus in our culture. So, when we talk about the person of Christ, who is He really, according to the Bible? He's the Son of God. Fully God, fully man. Fully God, you just stole my outline, brother. My goodness, now i got nothing to say. Fully God, fully man, right? He's the Son of God. Let's, let's stop there for a minute and just talk about that title, Son of God, because that's a title that really trips a lot of people up. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? What does it mean? Hmm? Well, if God... You know, is the Father, well, if He's a Father, does that mean that, well, somewhere there's a Son? Exactly. You can't be a, have a Father without a Son, right? So for God to eternally be the Father, He had to eternally have a Son. Right? We call this eternal generation. The Son has eternally been the Son of the Father. Now, when we talk about the Sonship of Christ, this is where Jehovah's Witnesses get tripped up. They say, see, for Jesus to be the Son, He had to have a beginning, He had to be created. So the Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that He's the first creature that God made. There's a problem with that. The problem is, if Jesus is only the Son of God in the sense of being the first creature, then He's not the only begotten Son of God. He's one of many sons of God, right? Because all of us have been created by God. But Jesus is not just one of many sons. He is the only begotten Son of God. That means That is to say He's the only of His kind. He's a unique Son of God. You know, angels are called the sons of God in the Bible. But they're the sons of God by creation. Okay, Men and women are called sons of God in the Bible. right? We're the children of God. But we are the children of God by both creation and redemption. Right? We're adopted into the family of God. We also have come to Christ. Right, exactly. However, Jesus is the Son of God by nature because He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His being. Okay, For Jesus to be the Son of God is to say He's one with God and He is God. Let me show you this. Turn to John 5. John chapter 5. So that's kind of the two points that I want to touch on that under the person of Christ. The twofold nature of Jesus. He's fully God. He's fully man. And So we'll start with showing, uh, pointing ourselves to Scripture that unequivocally declares the deity of Christ. So John 5, verse... Go to verse 17. John 5, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. So He calls God His Father. Verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, 
but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Notice that this is a this is a, a parenthetical statement by John. This is a statement by the narrator. He, he pauses in the midst of the story and says that Jesus was making himself equal to God by calling himself the Son of God. Okay? So the sonship of Christ is not by creation. It's not by adoption. It's not incarnational. It is essential. He is the essential Son of God because He shares the very nature of God and it is God. That's what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. So when you want to show that your cult friend that Jesus' sonship refers to His deity, you take Him to John 5.18. To be the Son of God is to be equal with God. Right? What are some other passages or, or some other proofs that we could give to the cult member to show that Jesus really is God. If you're if you're debating with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, where would you go to show them that Jesus is God? What would you do? Revelations. Revelation? Okay, we're at in Revelation. Yeah. Um, Did you have a statement in mind there? Uh, no, specific, well, uh, a letter to the seven churches. Oh, yeah. Um, and also, uh, of course, the, the scriptures that were, where it's about his uh, coming back. Okay. Okay, that's true. You know, over and over again in Revelation, he says things like, I'm the first and the last, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, right? Yeah. Psalm, where, you know, he says, the, my, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, uh, uh, about putting my enemies under your feet, make them footstool. Well, right. Who was he talking to there? Well, now here's where Jehovah's Witness is going to say this. Yeah. Okay, but if you know your Hebrew Bible, and their English translation is going to read this way, Jehovah said to my Lord. So, Jehovah says to Jesus, the Messiah, who's only Lord like a normal king would be Lord. He's a human uh, Lord. He's not like the eternal God. Just like in the Bible, you know, Peter called, or uh, what's his name? Cornelius called an angel Lord. The same word, kareos there. And that same word used for Jesus. It's just talking about him being a king. It doesn't mean he's God. So what would we say? How, where would we go in the Bible? Or what are some arguments we could present to demonstrate that Jesus really is God? Because you've got to know your stuff. The witnesses will eat your lunch. John 1, 1 and 14. Okay, let's go to John 1, 1 and 14. That's a good one. John 1, 1 and 14. This is a great verse, and I do believe that it's undeniable. But now let's watch what the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to do with this verse. John 1, 1. In our English Bibles, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was, God. was God. What does the Jehovah's Witness Bible say, the New World Translation? Does anybody know? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was a God. That's what their translation says, lowercase g, a God. Because there were capital and lowercase g's in the Greek, right? Yeah. But So the Jehovah's Witness says, no, this is just saying that Jesus is a God. Now, how would we respond to that? Verses 2 and 3. Oh, there you go. Verses 2 and 3. What does verse 2 and 3 say? He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is the Creator. So if you want to figure out which God Jesus is, He's the God who made everything. And another, another problem is when the witnesses point here, because here, here's why the witnesses say this. This is really complex. In the Greek of John 1.1, there's no definite article before the Greek word theos for God. So the definite article would be like the. Okay. So there's no definite article. And sometimes then it is right to say a God. It would be okay in some instances. Uh, but 
if you go down to John 1, look at John 1, 1 12. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Now, there's no definite article before God in the Greek there either, but the Jehovah's Witnesses translate that God. They know it's talking about the true God. That's very arbitrary. The point is, the definite article doesn't have to be used every time. Okay, The context is what's going to determine our interpretation of the passage. And within the biblical context, how many gods are there? How many gods exist? One, one god, right? 1 Corinthians 8.4, there's no god but one. Isaiah, over and over again. Before me there was no god formed. After me there will be no god. There's one god. But what about those passages that seem to say there are many gods? Right, Satan's called the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Uh, throughout Scripture we read things like, Worship Him, all you gods. So, what, what do we do with that? Are there more than, is there more than one God? They're false gods. False gods. People think there are. They invent them, but they're false gods. So in reality, there's only two categories in which we can put God or gods in. There's the true God, and there are false gods. So your Jehovah's Witness friend has to come to a conclusion. Is Jesus the true God, or is He a false God? And you'll notice that throughout Scripture, the Bible, when it, to distinguish between the true God and the false gods, it ascribes the work of creation to the true God. Right? Throughout the Psalms, we'll read things like this. The gods of the nations have eyes that can't see, ears can't hear, but our God created the heavens. That's, that's how you distinguish between the true God and, and idols. The true God is the Creator. And according to John, that's who Jesus is. He's the Creator. What are some other passages that we could go to? You need verse 14 too. That's right. What does verse 14 say? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is God, John 1.1, 1, 1, and became man, John 1.14, right? Fully God, fully man. The Jehovah's Witnesses then, are, that's one cult we have to deal with, but in light of uh, an eventful uh, time at the clinic last Wednesday with a, another cult member. There is another cult that I want to mention. It's the cult of the Oneness Pentecostals. Or you could call them Jesus name only. They call themselves apostolic. Lots of names under which they go. But it's essentially the same thing over and over again. Uh, has anybody heard of that before? Other than John? <laughs> I didn't until last Wednesday. Last Wednesday? Yeah. This is a very deceptive false teaching. Because here's what a, here's what a Oneness Pentecostal will say. Tell me if this sounds good. The Father is God, right? We agree with that. The Son is God. Any argument there? No. The Holy Spirit is God, and there's one God. They'll say that. That sounds good, doesn't it? We say that. However, here's the problem with the one that's Pentecostal. They deny the distinction of the person. They're not Trinitarian. They are uh, what's called modalism. They hold to a form of modalism, a form uh, of heresy taught by Sibelius early in the church history. And he basically taught that there's one God who's, a unit, who's Unitarian. He's one person. And He manifests Himself in different modes or manifestations of existence. So the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all Jesus, they say. They're all one person that just appear in different modes and forms. What's the problem with that? Is there a problem with that? When Jesus lived on earth, there's no God in heaven. Okay, there's... Yeah, there's... and He had a Son and the Holy Spirit. And how could He control the whole universe? Okay. So... Man. Right. So there's a, there, Jesus is on earth. And what, what else did Jesus do when He was on earth? He prayed to His Father. He prayed to the Father. Who in the world? Now, if you have 
modalism, you have schizophrenic Jesus praying to himself. What in the world is going on? Right? That's, that's what you have. Um, oh, and, 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 and Jesus said that, you know, that, uh, as long, that until he returned to his Father, the, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, couldn't come. Now, what Jesus meant by that, Gary, is that he himself is just going to come. I'm going to send me. Like, you don't see that. When you read the Gospels, Jesus doesn't say, I've come sent by Myself in My name. And by the way, when I leave, I'm going to send Myself again in another form. No, He says, the Father sent Me. He says, I'm going to send another Helper. Not Me, another Helper, the Holy Spirit. Let's look at a few passages that are going to absolutely confirm the distinction of the persons. Look at John 1.1 again. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now wait a minute. Now, would I ever say Jamie was with Jamie? No, you think I'm schizophrenic, right? What in the world's happening? I would say Jamie is with Sean or with John or you know with Keith. I would say that because we're distinct persons. So why would John? And remember, God is communicating to us in human language. He's going to utilize human language in its normal way to clearly communicate to his people. And he uses the word here, the word pros. The word has the idea of being in face-to-face communion with. So literally, we could, we could render the passage, the Word was in face-to-face communion with God. Now, that's a clear distinction. So the Word is with someone, and therefore He has to be distinct from someone. So here's the right way to read this passage. The Word was with God the Father, and the Word was God that is the Son. And if you go down to John 1.18, the same distinction is made. Look at John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So wait a minute. No one's seen God, but the only begotten God from the Father explains Him. You have two persons being called God here. Just like in John 1.1. So no one's ever seen God the Father, but God the Son is the one who reveals Him. You have two distinct persons who are referred to as God. Now go to John 17. John 17. Verse 5. John 17, verse 5. And now here's the problem with the oneness Pentecostal. They'll say that yes, there's a distinction, but the distinction's only due to the incarnation. That what you have is the Father, who is a Holy Spirit, clothing Himself in flesh, becoming the Son. And when He becomes the Son, the human nature of Jesus is communicating with the divine nature. That's the distinction. That's obviously kind of weird and illogical. But... We see what what we want to do with the one of Pentecostal is show them that there are distinctions within the Godhead even from eternity, even before the incarnation. Watch this, John seventeen five. Jesus says, "Now, Father, glorify." Watch the pronouns here. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is switching pronouns. He's going from the first to the second person. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. So according to this verse, Jesus was distinct from the Father, shared glory with the Father even before the creation of the universe. Therefore, Jesus is not the Father. Uh, And there are many others we could go to. Hebrews, Hebrews 10, Jesus says, A body you have prepared for me. Who in the world is He talking to? One of Pentecostal theology would be more consistent if it read this way. A body I have prepared for myself. But we don't read that. So Jesus... I don't know exactly where it is, but Jesus getting baptized. The baptism of Christ, right? What do we have at the baptism of Christ? God speaking 
the Spirit coming down in Jesus' name? All three persons, right? MacArthur says that God must have been changing hats really fast that day. I mean, it's just insane, isn't it? Modalism, it sounds good on the surface, but it's an indefensible, unbiblical position. And it's the wrong God at the end of the day. It's a, Arius, a heretic in the 4th uh, or 5th century, 3rd century, somewhere around there, uh, is really where we get the modern Jehovah's Witness idea from, called Arianism. Arius said there was a time when the sun was not. And the, more, the one of Pentecostals agreed with that. There was a time when the sun was not, because according to them, the sun is just the incarnation. He's just the human nature. But as we read in John 5.18, the Son is divinity. He is equal to the Father. The Sonship of Christ is His oneness of nature with Him. Alright, so Jesus is fully God. John 1.1 is a good place to go. But let me, let me kind of explain to you the best way, I think, to demonstrate the deity of Christ. There are four categories of things that are unique to God that are ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament. The titles of God are ascribed to Jesus. The attributes of God are ascribed to Jesus. The works of God are ascribed to Jesus. And the worship of God is ascribed to Jesus. If you can prove that point from the New Testament, you make an undeniable case for the deity of Christ. So let's start with some of the titles. What are some titles that are unique to God, to Jehovah, to Yahweh, that are attributed to Jesus? The first and the last, right? Isaiah. I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me. Yahweh says that. Revelation, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Who must Jesus be? Yahweh. Right? What are some other titles that are peculiar to God that are ascribed to you? Emmanuel. I am. So Emmanuel is a title that affirms that He's God with us? Uh, he's the judge. Jesus can forgive sins and judge people. So there's the works of God, right? Who, who's the judge according to the Old Testament? Yahweh. Over and over again, the psalmist says, Yahweh is coming to judge the earth in righteousness. The New Testament says, the Father judges no one. He's given all judgment to the Son. Then we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's a good one. Go to, for a minute, go to Romans 14. Romans 14. so many of these, I could spend the next three weeks just talking about the deity of Christ. Romans 14. Let's see if I can find it here in Romans 14. Verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So who are we going to stand before in judgment? God. Now go to 2 Corinthians 5. There's almost a parallel statement in 2 Corinthians 5, but there's one word that's different. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now wait a minute. Are we standing before the judgment seat of God or the judgment seat of Christ? Both, because Christ is God. Right? It's inescapable. So there you go. There's some of the works of God that are ascribed to Jesus. God is the judge. Jesus is the judge. God is the first and the last. Jesus is the first and the last. But also, even the name Yahweh, that's the big one. If we can prove the name Yahweh, Jehovah, is ascribed to Jesus, it's a case is closed. And we can do that. One way to do that is to go to Romans 10. Romans 10. 
Romans 10. This is a very, very, very important passage for the deity of Christ. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, the Greek word kadios there, confess with your mouth Jesus as kadios, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. According to that verse, who is Lord? Who do we confess as Lord? Jesus. Verse 10, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same kurios is kurios of all. Right? Who, who is Lord? Jesus. So Jesus is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Now verse 13, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, this is where it gets interesting. In our English Bible, it's hard to really figure this out. But in verse 13, when he says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, in the Greek, it's whoever will call on the name of the Hakurios will be saved. However, this is a quote from the Old Testament. right? If you, if you have a certain version of the Bible, you'll see it's in all caps here, telling you it's from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Joel 2.32. And in the Hebrew Bible, the original Hebrew, Joel 2.32 says this, whoever will call on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Okay? So Paul is taking that passage about Yahweh, quoting it in the New Testament, but using the Greek word kurios, Lord, and clearly applying that to Jesus. So we have to call on the name of Yahweh to be saved, and we do that when we call upon the name of Jesus to be saved, because Jesus is Yahweh. There is an undeniable case there for the full deity of Christ. Jesus is Yahweh. And we've already talked about the work of creation, right? Uh, let me give you a really helpful tip in uh, refuting a Jehovah's Witness. Go to in your Bible to Isaiah. Um, I can't remember if it's 44 or 45. I'll tell you in just a second. I think it's 44. Isaiah 44, 24. Isaiah 44, 24. And you're about to see how you can give a Jehovah's Witness a big, big problem. Isaiah 44, 24. Here's how it reads in our English Bibles. Thus says the Lord. Now notice the word Lord there in your English Bible is in all caps. Right? The reason it's in all caps is because in the Hebrew it doesn't really say Lord. In the original Hebrew it said Yahweh, the tetragrammaton. Four letters, Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. Of course, the Hebrews stopped using the divine name after a while out of a fear of blasphemy, and they started replacing it with the Hebrew Adonai, which means Lord. But in the original Hebrew, it says, Thus says Yahweh, and so if, you, if you're dealing with a witness, their Bible says this, Thus says Jehovah, your Redeemer, and the one who forms you from the womb. I am Jehovah, and the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by Myself, and spreading out the earth all alone, or literally, who was with me. According to this verse, who created the heavens and the earth? Jehovah. And who helped Jehovah? Noah. Noah, all by myself, who was with me. And, and the actual New World translation actually says that. Who was with me? I think it's a better translation, honestly. There. That's probably the better rendering of the Hebrew. So... I, Jehovah, made all things, stretched out the heavens by Myself, created the earth. Who was with Me? It's an obvious rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Now go to Colossians 1. So you have your Jehovah's Witness friend read that out of his own Bible. And you say, so, Mr. Jehovah's Witness, 
Who created the heavens and the earth? Jehovah. And he did it all alone, right? That's what it says, yeah? Who helped him according to this verse? He was alone, right? Take him to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Colossians 1, starting in verse 13. We just went through this recently, and so this should be fresh in our minds, right? Colossians 1, verse 13. Paul writes, For He rescued us, that is the Father, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So we're starting to talk about the Son now. Verse 14. In whom we have redemption, that is the Son, the forgiveness of sins. He, that is the Son, that's the antecedent. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him, that is the Son, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. According to this passage, who made the world? The Son. Jesus. Now you ask your Jehovah's Witness friend, because here's what the Jehovah's Witness theology teaches. It teaches that the Father created Jesus and then through Jesus created everything else. So that Jesus, who by the way is Michael the Archangel, helped Jehovah in creation. But according to Isaiah, no one helped Jehovah. But according to Colossians, Jesus was their creator. So the Jehovah's Witness has a contradiction in his Bible in light of his theology. One place in his Bible says Jehovah created everything all alone. Another place in his Bible says Michael the Archangel helped him, if you interpret it that way. That's a contradiction. As Trinitarians, we don't have that contradiction, do we? Because yes, Jehovah created the world all alone, and yes, Christ created the world, because Christ is Jehovah. Right? The only way to accurately and consistently interpret those two passages together is to conclude that Jesus is Jehovah. So those are some arguments that you can use with your Jehovah's Witness friend to prove that Jesus is God. And then finally, Jesus is fully man, right? Jesus is fully man. John 1.14, the Word became flesh. Uh, Philippians 2, He humbled Himself, took on the form of a man, and was found in the appearance as a man, and humbled Himself at the point of death. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Is it important for unbelievers to come to believe this? Can they be saved without believing this? Go to John 8. John chapter 8. Jesus is having a dispute with the religious leaders and He just makes it so clear as to who He is. And they just keep asking Him, who are you making yourself out to be? And they're just not getting it. So He finally tells them plainly. John 8. Look at verse 25. Look what he says. So they were saying to him, Who are you? Who are you? Jesus said to them, What I've been saying to you from the beginning. I mean, it's not like I've been hiding it. It's obvious. I've been telling you. Verse 26. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, them I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Verse 28. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you're going to know that I am he. Now, very important. The Greek, there's no he there. The Greek is ego I me. I am. I am. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And then you go back to verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. What does it, what does it mean to die in your sins? Unsaved. Unsaved. To die guilty of sin and go to hell. Jesus says... 
you know, the all-loving teddy bear, who always was seeker-friendly, looked out to these people and said, you will die in your sins, for unless you believe, literally, that I am, you will die in your sins. What is Jesus saying there? Is He just claiming to be really old? What does He mean, I am? Does He mean you've got to believe I exist? What does He mean by I am? Where else do we find that statement in the Bible? Exodus 3.14, right? I am who I am, right? And also here in John verse 58. 8.58, right? Go to verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And notice verse 59, Therefore they picked up stones to throw it at him, throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why are they trying to stone him for? He right. If he would have just been saying, Look, I'm older than Abraham, they'd be like, What do you think? You're a vampire? No, but he's claiming to be God. So now they're trying to stone him for a claim of deity. That's under Old Testament law, you blaspheme, you get stoned, right? Jesus is claiming to be God. Exodus 3.14, right? God tells Moses, I am who I am. The Hebrew there is the verb, that Hebrew verb to be is where we get the word Yahweh from. So it's actually where we get the divine name from. Jesus is claiming to be I am, Yahweh, right here, undeniably. And if you do not believe that, you will what? Die in your word. So if we want unbelievers to be saved, they have to believe in the right Jesus. The true Jesus. And the true Jesus is not an angel. He's not a prophet second to Muhammad. He's not a mere man. He is the God who made the universe. And before we close, let me ask this question. Why was it important for Jesus to be both God and man to be our sufficient Savior? Why did He have to be fully God and fully man to save us? Why could God not just send an angel? Are you going to say something, Glory? Because an angel doesn't have any of the human qualities. And being that we are created in God's image, okay. you know, being created in God's image, that's had to be, like a better word, represented. Yeah, okay, so it had to have human qualities? Or are you going to say something, Glory? Got to be a blood sacrifice, right? So it's got to be a human being. Right? That's what the sacrificial system was about. It's got to be a human being. It's got to have a real physical body. Right? And it has to be perfect. It has to be perfect. Okay? So it's got to be a perfect human being with blood to be a perfect representative to die as our substitute. Okay? That's true. Why couldn't God just send an angel? Why couldn't Michael the archangel become incarnate and just die for our sins? Why did it have to be Yahweh Himself? Because He was the perfect lamb and He was God's only Son. Perfect lamb and God's only son, that's true. <coughs> Why couldn't Michael the Archangel come and just be a perfect lamb for us? He's a, he's a created being. It's a created being? Okay. Angels can sin. Angels, we know that for sure, right? Hence Satan and his demonic host. Angels can certainly sin. But here's, I think, the main reason he had to be God. The only one who had the infinite worth to bear the infinite penalty for sin in six hours on the cross and turn it away for all the sins of all those people all over the whole world is God Himself. Spurgeon said, we need a ladder that reaches from the top to the bottom to the bottom to the top. We need a Savior who is both God and man. And now God and man can be one again because Jesus is both God and man. And we have a perfect Savior. Apart from this Savior, there is no hope. But praise the Lord, we have a sufficient Savior. There's deity and humanity and one.
Any final thoughts, comments, or questions on all of that? There's another one. Angels don't die. Angels don't die? That's true. That's true. It'd be nice to be an angel, wouldn't it? But we have a glorious salvation that angels will never experience. So it's also nice to be human. Any other thoughts? All right, well, next week we'll pick up with the work of Christ and we'll talk really extensively about what our Savior has done to bring us into His kingdom. But for now, let's pray. Father, thank You for sending Your Son, the Lord Jesus, the only One in heaven and on earth who is sufficient to be our Redeemer. We could search the heights and the depths and there'd be no other that would be a qualified Savior. But Christ is the One who is. He is the one who's come forth, as it was written of him in the book, to do your will, O God. You're not pleased with animal sacrifices and offerings, but a body you prepared for the Son, that he might come into this world and redeem us. Thank you for the clarity of your word. It's just so clear. You use our language to communicate to us in such a clear way that we have no doubt about who you are. And I pray that for those of us in our world who reject the truth about Christ, that you would open their eyes to that truth, and bring them to the faith in the true Savior. And I pray also that you would use this lesson continually to equip us to be sufficient evangelists, sufficient apologetic people, people who are apologists, the people who can go into the world with the Gospel, the people who can defend the Gospel. So the next time a witness knocks on our door or a Mormon knocks on our door, we know what to say. Lord, we have the truth, and I pray that we would know it and communicate it with clarity that you might use us to bring people into your kingdom for your glory. Amen.